Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I've asked that you'd uh, join with me in turning in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, uh, and I forgot to check what page this is on in your Pooh Bibles, but it's in your bulletins. What's that? 11.05. Thank you very much. 11.05 in your Pew Bibles. Uh, I did want to issue a correction. Last time uh, I came up here and said that we'd be beginning a series on Malachi 1. Uh, for those of you who are scared that that would go on far too long, we are not doing a series on Malachi 1. You were to turn to Malachi 1, and we'll be doing a series on the book of Malachi. So <laughs> we are in uh, Malachi chapter 2. Last time we looked at the empty religious life of the post-exilic Jews, the uh, the walls being rebuilt, the city being rebuilt, the temple being rebuilt, the sacrificial system being brought back onto line. And yet the Jews uh, in those days wanted God's blessing to look a certain way. And when it didn't, they fashioned their worship half-heartedly in response to what they saw as God's half-hearted commitment to them. And so as we turn to Malachi chapter 2, God now turns his attention to reprimand the priestly leaders of this half-hearted Worship. So uh, let us turn to Malachi chapter 2. This is verses 1 through 16. Uh, and for today's reading, I'll be reading from the ESV. Listen and hear the word of the Lord. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dungs of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, 
and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us open in prayer. Our God, we do thank you that as we come to you and we read your word, it is alive and it is active and it pierces our hearts. And we pray that as we come uh, and as we uh, examine your word together, that uh, you, seeing all, would examine our hearts uh, and cause us to reflect uh, on the word that you have kept with us uh, and how we can honor you through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Joe was a model son of two Irish immigrants, uh, that is, until he wasn't. Uh, He made it into Harvard, uh, made it all the way through uh, the program, uh, and then in an effort to evade military service in World War I, he joined the steel industry as an essential worker. Uh, Prohibition hit America, and he began to import liquor uh, with the best of the mob bosses. He engaged in insider trading, amassed a a great amount of wealth. That's also how he avoided the stock market crash uh, and continued his success through the 1930s. And in 1938, Joe and his family moved to London, uh, where he started telling people, and I quote, that it was in America's best interests to stay neutral in any coming conflict with Germany and that the U.S. would not see eye to eye with Britain as it had done in the past are uh, rather strong words when you're living in London. Uh, But while in London, he sought and gained audience with the German ambassador to Great Britain, where he told the ambassador, it was not so much the fact that Germany wanted to get rid of the Jews that was so harmful to America, but rather the loud clamor with which Germany accomplished this purpose. These are difficult words uh, to hear, I would imagine. Uh, A bit more difficult Uh, when we recognize the legacy and impact that Joe and his family had on America, mostly through his three sons, uh, Bobby, Ted, and Jack. But they're perhaps even harder to hear uh, when we recognize that Joseph P. Kennedy was actually the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain at the onset of World War II. The problem was that when he was appointed ambassador, he made no effort to change his opinions or to represent his superior but he held his own opinions and put those uh, in his place, representing himself. And you and I uh, will probably never be U.S. ambassadors to a foreign country. Maybe a handful uh, of our young children will be someday. Uh, But the fact is that you and I serve a much higher leader. You and I serve the king of the universe. And we are representatives of God and his covenant to this world. Uh, In this world, my apologies. And so as we look at Malachi 2, Malachi turns his attention to the priests and then applies the word to the people and gives them the same message that you and I need to hear today. And that is that you must live as a redeemed covenant ambassador for God's glory. You must live as a redeemed covenant ambassador for God's glory. And so the first point that Malachi uh, convicts the priests of is that you are, in fact, God's covenant ambassadors. And we see this as we turn to Malachi uh, 2, verses 1 through 2, where Malachi says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. God, through Malachi, is now focusing his attention uh, on the priests and lays uh, the fault on them for not laying the commandment to heart. 
Uh, and of course, we have to ask, what commandment is it uh, that God is referencing through Malachi? Uh, and it's what we looked at last time when we looked at Malachi chapter 1, that we ought to honor God through wholehearted worship, uh, not making uh, convenient asides in, in worship or sort of substitutes in sacrifice with something faulty, but we ought to be honoring God completely as our father and our master when we come to him in worship. And it seems the priests have not laid this to heart. Uh, we saw that last time. And interestingly, the message here is given from whom? In verse 2, take it to heart. To give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, and in your Bible, this word Lord is probably written in all caps with the O-R-D a bit shorter. Uh, I know that I've mentioned this before in some Sunday school classes, and many of you have may have heard this elsewhere. This Lord, uh, this word Yahweh, is a special covenant name that God shares with his people. And it's unfortunate, I think, that it's, it's fallen out of use in our English Bibles uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but I think it's important for us to understand where it falls in our Bibles uh, to see that God is actually using it to emphasize his covenant relationship with his people. He could say, I am your God, you are my people. He could say, I am the God of Jacob. But here he says, I am Yahweh. I am your covenant God. You are the people with whom I made a promise. And this promise, this covenant, has uh, an agreement of blessings and curses depending on uh, our relationship with the sovereign who made this covenant. Uh, but God here highlights that there are curses due to these priests because they have been representing the covenant wrongly and they've been leading the people in the covenant wrongly. Uh, chapter 1 is to say, God is your special covenant father and sovereign, and you owe him worship. But as we can see throughout this passage, one of the most striking aspects here, I think, is that you could almost draw a diagram uh, of how the people's response to God in the covenant uh, cascades into other areas of life. God sits up at top, and the, the priests and their worship then fall below that. Uh, and the priest's daily life is affected by their worship to God. And of course, all the people of Israel, as they watch, uh, their worship is also affected by the way the priests worship and live. And their lives are then affected by the way they respond to God. And you can see that the leaders of the covenant ought to uphold God's word because it shapes the life and worship of every person in the covenant community. But the priests have failed. The life of a covenant representative has profound and lasting consequences on the covenant community. So it should not surprise us when we look down at verse 10. Uh, this is actually the first place in the book of Malachi uh, where we have a closed quotation mark with no, with no new opening quotation mark. This is the first time that Malachi speaks, uh, you could say, without a direct word from the Lord that he is quoting from Yahweh to give to the people. In this way, Malachi is actually preaching now. He is taking this word of God, turning to the people, and applying it to their lives, just like we do in the pulpit today. In verse 10, his opening words to the people are, have we not all one father? Malachi 1.6, last time we saw, says, a son honors his father and a servant his master, and if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? So we've seen that the priests need to be recognizing God as their father and as their master. Uh, now Malachi is saying, you have the same father, Israel. You are not excused from this covenant relationship just because you aren't priests. 
Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And here we see how this is cascaded into the lives of the people. He is now not referring to worship, but to their daily lives. Why then are we faithless to one another when we profane this covenant? That, that is, the covenant with the fathers is the covenant at Sinai. It's the Old Testament law that the people seem to be just spurning and turning away, even though they've been blessed by being welcomed back into the land of Israel. The interesting thing, though, you and I, uh, in case it's not obvious, we're not Israel, and we're not Old Testament priests. <laughs> so why is it uh, that this applies to us? Well, we read earlier uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, and I'll quote verses 5 and 9. Uh, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Unless we think that Peter is specifically speaking to the Jews, as he was known as the apostle to the Jews, uh, we see in Revelation a similar thing as God's people are gathered around his throne. And it says, they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So it's clear to us that we carry on the same special covenant relationship that the Old Testament priests and, in fact, all of Israel had with God. This applies to us now and today. We, too, are priests and kings and representatives of the covenant. We are ambassadors in a new and special way, different uh, from what we might have seen in Old Testament Israel. And we are not under the curse of the law, but God still commands us to worship him rightly as priests. We think last time we were in Malachi, our worship is a reflection of our thoughts on him and his place in our lives. We worship him before a watching and fallen world. So we too are members of the covenant, priests of the covenant, and so ambassadors of God's law, even though we are sojourners here on this earth. We cannot, like Joseph Kennedy, declare whatever we want whenever we want, because it's not our place to spout off our opinions and desires, but we are to live as representatives of our superior and proclaim and live out his will. And if we don't, we wind up with desperate consequences. And this is Malachi's second word to the people. Misrepresenting God has terrible consequences. We see this in verse 3. First of all, Uh, No, I'm sorry. Uh, In verses 11 through 14, beginning with the way that the people are living their daily life. Uh, What's happening here is that the people are continuing in an age-old sin. They've already been exiled in Assyria and Babylon for anywhere from 40 to 100 years, depending on the tribe. And once they return to the land, they build up their walls, their temple, their city, and they continue doing what they've always done. Verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless, An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant to the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor for your, from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In fact, they've been intermarrying with the women of the surrounding nations. And what's more, they're divorcing their own Israelite wives to do so. There's some question about what uh, the daughter of a foreign god means, whether it's simply that they are uh, foreign women uh, or perhaps priestesses of another nation. Uh, Whatever it is, it seems that the people uh, who are sort of economically downtrodden back in Israel seem to be wanting to connect themselves, to move up the social ladder as they're back in this new Uh, this new land. And so they're actually putting away their own covenant wives in an effort to pursue their own glory, to pursue uh, self-aggrandizement and a better career and better political connections as they establish their homes here in Israel again. Uh, But Malachi is reminding them, God is your father and your covenant master and the God of the temple where you are making these sacrifices. He is the one who will accept Or reject your offering. God is also, though, a witness. A legal witness, it says in verse 14. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Uh, I know my wife and I took uh, our vows in this church, and I think many of you did the same. Uh, When we did, though, we were urged to repeat a line from uh, Pastor Adam Neese, where he said, Uh, And we were to to follow, like I said, I vow before God and these witnesses to, uh, and unfortunately the day went by so fast I don't remember all the words that follow, so, uh, (laughs) but I know that they're posted in our home for us to look at and I'm grateful. Uh, But we often, we will say these things, that I vow before God and these witnesses, and I think often we think, oh, these witnesses, these people who are gathered here who could, in a court of law, come in and sign their names on a piece of paper. But in fact, we're saying before God and these witnesses, that God himself is actually watching throughout our married lives. That when we make that covenant promise to our spouse that God is a witness, not only to the occasion, but to the whole marriage. And that's what Malachi is saying here. Malachi has arranged like a series of courtroom accusations, and here he calls upon God as the greatest witness ever to take the stand, the one who cannot lie, the one who sees everything, the one who knows the law, and the one who can make the exact right judgment in every single case. And what is his verdict? The one who does this, or anyone associated with them, will be first cut off from worship This is their present reality. They've been doing this. They've been forsaking uh, their wives and marrying outside of the covenant community. And God says that he no longer regards their offering or accepts it with favor. And the people are wondering, why is this? But God is showing them that when you live wrongly, this cascade starts happening again. If you're going to live wrongly before me, then I will not accept your worship and your offering that is given at your hand. And secondly, this cascade continues, you will be cut off from the daily life of the people. It even says he will cut off from the tents of Jacob, from the land and the community on the whole. Anyone who does this or anyone associated with the one who does this. Because there are repercussions that come upon somebody who misrepresents God. Faulty worship and living 
results in punished worship and living. And we should look at verses 8 and 9, how this is returned then on the priests. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. We should see that Yahweh himself, the Lord of hosts, will make them despised because they've broken their covenant charges before God, according to the covenant of Levi. Now, there's some question about what the covenant of Levi is. There's no such explicit covenant in the Bible made with the person of Levi, uh, at least in the text uh, that we have in our word. Uh, And so, uh, by that I mean no such formal uh, covenant. The first place that many commentators point to is Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 11. And this uh, is at the event of the golden calf. Uh, Moses is uh, recalling... Uh, calling out to the people and reminding them what the people of Levi and the Levites did at the occasion of the golden calf being set up. God had given his commandments to Israel. Uh, They forsook them immediately by building up an idol. Uh, And at the time, Moses called out and said, who will avenge uh, the Lord and right worship? And the Levites answered. They strapped on their swords and they actually slew their own brothers and sisters for forsaking true and holy worship of God. And so Deuteronomy is uh, given just before Moses dies, and he's giving blessings upon the various tribes. And uh, you'll see in your outline, Deuteronomy 33, 8 through 11. And of Levi, he said, They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. And so we have the obligations to teach uh, the judgments and the law to Jacob and to Israel. Uh, The obligation to offer worship before God. the, The blessing of protection and a curse against the enemies. This may well be the covenant of Levi. And the obligation to the people is to teach God's law. But in fact, we see that they have turned aside from the way, causing many to stumble by the instruction and show partiality in their instruction. They are not upholding this covenant with God. They've been misrepresenting ambassadors. Uh, But the second possible covenant that we see is actually in Numbers 25. Uh, This is a similar scenario, actually. It's funny how these keep spiraling around. Uh, Israel has just begun to settle near the promised land and they begin to worship a false god Baal they begin to intermarry with foreign women Uh, and the high priest Phineas uh, is praying to God that he would intervene when a man with a foreign woman walk by the front of the temple and walk into a tent uh, to be together and Phineas grabs a spear and drives it through the man and the woman And God stays his hand from further judgment. And in Numbers 25, verses 10 through 13, there's another covenant that's made here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him 
a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. And so we see, actually, the priests have been corrupting this covenant too. They have not made atonement for the people of God by giving lame, blind, sick sacrifices. And they have not had a zeal for God that comes from the Lord of hosts when they do this. They also are not teaching the people God's law. And so uh, this, cor- this covenant, too, is corrupted. Uh, both of these possible covenants of Levi, or in, ba- in fact, both of them together bound up as a covenant with Levi and his descendants, have been completely turned away from by the priests. And what is God's answer to them? Look with me in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. First off, dung is an unclean bodily discharge. Second, that of animals, sacrificial animals, would also be further unclean. And what's more, they've not even been offering clean animals for sacrifice. So this is triply unclean, this thing that God is going to uh, curse upon them. But according to the Old Testament, when a, when a sacrifice was to be offered, uh, the entrails, the intestines, the dung, the undigested food still inside this animal were to be carved out of the animal and brought outside of the camp. They were so unclean. To be burned in a separate heap outside of the camp. And so, when God says uh, that he is going to smear dung upon their faces, the dung of their offerings, and they'll be taken away with it, there's a condemnation to the priests that they no longer belong inside of Israel. Deuteronomy 6.8 says that the people were to bind the laws of God upon their foreheads, and now God is smearing filth on their foreheads. It's as if God is saying, I'll show you what you're wearing, if that will be your law. Uh, The quote from David Peterson in your outline says, the priests now have the status of dung, something that must be removed from the ritual complex. What was holy has now become impure, and ritual logic requires its destruction. No more radical condemnation of the Aaronid line can be imagined. The idea that the priests, the very epitome of cleanness and holiness, could be carried away seems to tell Israel that nothing is so sacred to God that sin will not be removed. It's a self-imposed punishment in verse 16 that the people receive for a similar act. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. It's as if God is telling the people, priests, if you want to make worship about the externals, then I will make it about externals, and I'll show you what that looks like. Here is the filth of your filthy offerings put upon your face because you forsook the law which is supposed to be on your forehead. People, if you want to show the nations what's really going on, I'll show you. In verse 14, he speaks of the companion and the wife of the, by the covenant. That Hebrew word for companion is a joined together one, a knit together one. 
And the one who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Some translations even say cover it with blood. You've torn apart a person when you do this. And so you have a punishment for all the nations to see. Your garment is covered with violence and with blood when you do this. Well, what about us? Well, we too are covenant representatives of God. Do we live as people who have God as a witness in our marriages? Do we teach and uphold the commands of God, binding them to our forehead in our daily life? Do you adorn yourself with the law of God or with the violence of self-promotion? How are we different? When you walk about and people look to you, can they see that you're clothed in the righteousness of God? Or in the violence of unfaithfulness, of self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, the upward climb for social mobility. Young men, young women, do you recall God as a witness in your life when you're on your phone in the isolation of your room or in the darkness of the night? Fathers and mothers, even if your children can't read, can they or your coworkers read the law of God put on your forehead? Or do they say this, see the same filth on your life that the world keeps putting in their faces. So what do we do? Is there hope for us as covenant ambassadors? The answer, of course, is yes. And Malachi shows us that restructuring our lives around God's commands is the only solution. So his third point in verses 15 and 16 is to live according to the covenant and represent God's redemption. Uh, One of the problems or perhaps advantages of being a young preacher is that I don't know what I don't know. And apparently, verse 15 is uh, among the hardest verses in the Old Testament to translate. And so, uh, fortunately for you, I don't know Hebrew. Uh, So rather than explain all four angles that commentators say it could mean, uh, I'm just going to give you the one that they all seem to be dancing around, the very simple one, and that happens to be the explanation that comes from John Calvin, which is very helpful. Uh, I made a mistake uh, in your outline. I I intended to put the New King James Version uh, here, but I accidentally copied the ESV text. The New King James for uh, chapter 2, verse 15, reads as this. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Uh, That's one of the two main translations for this, and and Calvin, in fact, explains it like this. Could not God, he says, have put forth his spirit to create many wives for one man? Did he not make one of them, one wife for Adam, having a remnant of the spirit? God had enough creative energy. His purpose was to create a pair, to make man a husband and a wife, as God then was not without a remaining spirit, And yet did not exceed this measure. It hence follows that the law of marriage is violated when man seeks for himself many wives. Calvin says God has enough creating energy, enough spirit that was there at creation that he could have made two, four, ten wives for Adam, but he didn't. And he did that with a purpose. Because he wanted godly offspring. In other words, adherence to God's design in creation is a faithful witness to God's character. The other possible translation for this is plainly put in the ESV, which I read earlier, and here the emphasis is put on an almost New Testament understanding of marriage, which is clearly seen in the Old as we read this. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
These two are not at odds with one another. I see no reason the Holy Spirit could not have given us both of these meanings. And in fact, when we marry, God's imprint or his spirit is put into the marriage, as this translation says. Not only are we symbolic ambassadors of God and his covenant, but we actually carry God with us when we wed. So important is this union to him. And it's meant to be carried into future generations as well. Why did he do this? Because he desired godly offspring. Godly children come from godly homes. Godly parents, staying together in covenant with one another, teaching the law of God, represent the covenant to a watching world. And they represent God and the covenant of Israel's fathers. But how do they represent God when they do this? And this is where Paul fills us in. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, this is in your outline. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, but he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This is why our marriages are so important, because they're a representation of what God has done for us. We are joined as one, as a covenant representative, a single covenant representative of God's covenant of salvation for us. God was seeking godly offspring, not only children of the law of God, but children of the family of God. When we split our marriages apart because one person's dream isn't the other person's dream, or because uh, I want my career and this person is holding me back, or because I found somebody more attractive than the person I was with, it doesn't just harm the other party, that is, cover your garment with violence or with blood. We actually terrorize the reputation of God. We show the world that God doesn't care about us. That he doesn't care about the promise that he made for us. He'll take off as soon as he finds someone who wants the same thing as he does. We proclaim to the world that God cares more about his own career of glory than about saving sinners. And when we do that, we preach to ourselves that God found us attractive and he can move on when he finds someone prettier than us. But that is a lie. Because nothing about you or I was ever attractive to God. God doesn't flit about from wife to wife, but in fact, Ephesians tells us that he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, that is you and I, the bride of Christ, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So how dare we show the world that God does not have a deep love for sinners? And that's Malachi's message here to the people. Malachi also proclaims that we don't have to abandon the image of God in our marriages. Twice in these two verses, he says, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. That word spirit is the same spirit that was creative energy. It's the spirit of God himself in our marriages. This is the spirit then that we should have the mind of God, as Paul says. 
Guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. And so if we're attentive to his laws and his covenant and we seek to live as men and women pursuing God's own heart and will, we won't be faithless if we keep his word bound on our foreheads. This is the cure. Live according to the covenant. It's that easy. This was always the cure, and Israel had already failed for nearly 2,000 years. So what do we do now? Well, verses 4 through 7 show us the answer. And the answer is live through Christ's covenant and see God's blessing. Live through Christ's covenant and see God's blessing. We've already seen how God has chosen to respond to the priests and their inability to keep his commands. And he's going to cast them out and punish them for their uncleanness. And now let's look at verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. First, God explains that he sent this command, this reminder to uphold his name, so that the priests will know his covenant with Levi may stand. Thus says Yahweh. God promises to validate and to vindicate the covenant that they have violated for centuries. But why? First, we have to recall the two instances. The golden calf to which Israel had surrendered. And the Levites slaying their brothers to protect the holy worship of God. And second, when Israel had surrendered to the idol of Baal. And Phinehas slew a son of the covenant to protect holy living before God. These are the duties of a priest of the covenant to preserve right worship and right living before a holy God. But if the priest hadn't done this for hundreds of years, why is he making a promise to renew and preserve this covenant now? And to answer that, we have to remember the special place that Malachi holds in the canon of Scripture. Not only is Malachi the last prophet of the Old Testament, but these are the last words sent as a preview of what is to come. John the Baptist stands at the end of a 400-year gap where God did not speak to his people, but Malachi stands at the beginning of it. Malachi is looking off into the distance to seeing what is to come. It is possible that no one in the Old Covenant had more information about the Messiah to come than Malachi did. Every word was there before him. And so in verses 5 through 7, he says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts." Malachi is speaking, looking forward to a new day when life and peace are truly given to a high priest of Israel. He looks forward to the one who responded to that life and peace by fearing God in the covenant. Malachi looks forward to a priest who is reverent before the name of God, who holds the law of truth in his mouth, who has no injustice on his lips. Malachi is looking to the horizon ahead of him, and he sees a man approaching who walks with God in peace and equity, There is no difference between this man and God. So complete is his loyalty. They are in unity or at peace. He is without blame. He is upright. 
because he proclaims knowledge and the law of God comes from his mouth. He turns many away from iniquity because he is the messenger of Yahweh, the messenger sent from Yahweh in heaven. The great and only high priest is Christ, the prophet come from God, bringing the message of the law and the great high priest teaching the law. And we often think of the law of God as a disheartening message, but this is not. On the contrary, when the law of God is rightly applied to our lives, we seek after it, and it turns us from iniquity. And who could rightly apply God and his law to our aching, unjust, self-justifying, divorcing world than the mouthpiece of God, the word become flesh? We saw from Malachi 1 that there's only one way to worship God rightly, and that's to do it through Christ and through his sacrifice. When we do that, we see that our lives are transformed to walk according to his word and seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And when we do that, we show that we're taking this command to heart. We give glory to God's name. We're doing the things of the covenant. We're keeping this covenant because of the work of Christ and his transforming work in our hearts. Because you and I are priests of the new covenant, as we read in Peter. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We need to live as transformed priests who carry this word and not cause others to depart and to stumble, but to turn and live, not because we are perfect, but because we are to fall in step with the one who gives this life-giving word of truth. We're to be so full of speaking the word into the world that people seek instruction from our lips, that our lips drip truth. And before we noted that if we make it about externals, God will make it about externals too. But if we rightly align our hearts, then God will bless what comes from our mouth. Uh, It has been said that if you were to gather a hundred pianos in a room and start at the first piano and play a note and tune that whole piano based off of the first note you play and move on to the next piano and tune that off of the middle note and move on and do that with each and every piano, you would have a room full of beautifully in-tuned pianos that when played at the same time would not produce the same notes. But when you grab a tuning fork and you move from each piano and tune them to that single pitch, that all of a sudden you have a hundred pianos in perfect unity and harmony. And in much the same way, Christ's living by the word of truth and his proclaiming the law becomes a tuning fork for our lives. When we restructure our lives according to the word and the walk of Christ, every one of us becomes a perfect, redeemed ambassador for God and his law and his word. Our lives need to be in tune with Christ. We live, when we live to represent God, we will then walk in peace and equity before him and turn many away from iniquity because we represent God and his covenant and the one who kept that covenant on our behalf. So church, as you are God's people shining his light into a dark world, you must live as a redeemed covenant ambassador for God's glory. Let us pray. God, we thank you uh, that we are not left on an ash heap outside the community because of our sin, uh, that our garments not remained 
stained with blood, but they have been traded out because of the blood of Christ, which cleanses and washes us, that we might be presented pure and blameless and holy before you. We know that we do sin and we have sinned, but we pray, Lord, uh, that because of the grace of Christ and his redemption of our souls and bodies, that we can live before you eternally in covenant as everlasting priests before you, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Please help us live as ambassadors for you, not as our own representative, but bringing forth your word and your work into a world that desperately needs it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we'll respond to God by singing Psalm 101b. Psalm 101b is a song of Christ the King. Of loyalty and justice, I raise my voice in song. To you, O Lord, I lift up these words in music strong, the perfect way I ponder. When will you come to me? I'll live within my palace with true integrity. And this one, his walk is blameless. And when we do so as well, you see in stanza three, the one whose walk is blameless will serve and wait on me. So let us sing this as covenant ambassadors of God, walking uprightly in his word.